Hello and welcome to the Effective Conversation podcast. My name is Yael Feiner, and today is day 57 of the war in Ukraine. This is the second episode with Eli Feiner, and this time we explore Russia's way of thinking and try to understand their actions through their war tactics, through what they tell to their own soldiers and citizens, and through a KGB report that was leaked to the West. Enjoy. So let's start with talking about where do you consume your information because many of the things that you find are not on the media. And also how you consume it, like how many hours, is it good for you, how it's affecting you, stuff like that. Sure, yeah. So I guess on an average day, I probably spend an hour, maybe two hours consuming things related to Ukraine. I do more of it when something interesting is happening. Interesting typically means horrific. It's not. It's interesting and fun. Typically, it's something bad happening. But when the Moscow ship was blown up on that day, I probably spent five hours online just trying to get a glimpse of everything because it wasn't clear if it was sinking. If it wasn't sinking, how many sailors were on board? Did the Ukrainians sink it? What, it wasn't clear what was happening. And clear from Twitter, it wasn't clear from do you it also... wasn't clear to anybody okay. so it I feel it's my moral duty to not forget about it i I feel a really strong pull to to be a part of it. I'm not aside from this podcast, I'm not actually contributing anything. I'm not even. Uh, writing that many comments on Twitter, maybe uh, once or twice a day. I feel like everything that needs to be said is already being said there. So it's consumption, but it's not mindless consumption. I'm looking for some kind of a some kind of a big picture, some kind of a gist. like what's going on? Twitter is just a barrage of many tiny pieces of information coming from uh, all directions. I follow about forty people related to the war. And each has a different perspective. But yeah, I'm, when I took a break for a couple of days, I felt like something was missing. Something was missing from my life. I, wasn't, I didn't know what was going on and it felt weird and off. And I started to forget about it. And that felt morally wrong because there's, there is a tremendous amount of suffering. Over there there's also there's a tremendous amount of suffering in Ukraine there is also a, a less discussed amount of suffering on the Russian side and however evil they may be there are still human beings and their suffering is still real especially people who are just suffering from the the economic um, downturn of Russia right now so It just feels wrong to to take nice walks in the forest here in Canada and then look at the trees and enjoy life and just be concerned with my own small life of making a living and grocery shopping and yelling at kids. Yeah, it feels like I spent a lot of time in a lot of these things happening around the world with my head deeply buried in sand, not really paying as much attention. The last time I was this involved in something happening was... A war between Israel and Gaza. I think this was maybe like eight years ago or ten years ago when I was glued to to the news and I really wanted to know what was going on. Typically, I shove these things out of my mind. But this time, yeah. What would you recommend to other people when they, they consume news about Ukraine and they feel overwhelmed and all the horrors and horrific stuff that they read or confusing messages coming from... different of course sources of information there there are at least two questions there one is what's the right rate of consumption versus rest and the other <clears throat> is how do you know what's actually true so for the first my answer is to dive in deeply for a short period of time and take a long break like things don't actually happen every day they don't happen every hour if you're not personally fascinated by the minutia of war strategy and tank movements, then yeah, you just need the gist. And the reason you do need to know what's going on is it may seem like a local conflict, but it's not really. It has the potential to engulf the world. Regardless of where we are, the, the geopolitical results of this are going to be felt everywhere. One of the things that is going to be felt very profoundly, I think, everywhere is the rise of prices on food and, and energy. 
that's something we're all going to feel. Probably this summer is going to become very intense, some countries more than others. There's also a potential for a real deep shift in, in how the world operates, because Russia has always been a major player. It may become an even major player, or it may disappear. So it's, it's an important piece of, of news, right? So when you're saying dive deep, not everybody understands exactly what you're talking about. And dive deep can, can for some people, can sound like let's read a lot and from different sources, which is also good. I think what we're talking about here is finding more information about the background, the context, the big picture of the war, of big picture of the topics we are talking about to have a real understanding about what's going on. We can't understand the conflict between Ukraine and Russia as a Western. We can't understand what's going on with indigenous people as white people that have no connection with indigenous people. So we have to learn more of the history. So taking time to learn history, to understand the context, to understand the background of the situation. And then you can keep following the information and the bits of pieces of information will fit in much better. Okay, so let's talk about the narrative that was keep changing in Russia and why it was keep changing and what happened there and who believes them. Yeah, so this relates to the everlasting question, what is actually true and what are facts and what's not true. And one of the ways you can see that the Russians are not, let's say, very honest is how the truth that is represented from in the Russian media changes over time. They started this as a special operation to root out the Nazi elements in Ukraine. We can argue about whether Ukraine actually has significant Nazi elements, but that was the Russian, the Kremlin's perspective. We're going to go in, we're going to quickly root out the Nazi elements in the government as they went in and discovered that, you know, they can't take over Ukraine that quickly. The narrative shifted to, and it was like, it was actually written uh, very directly in, in the, the state media. We thought we were going to need to only root out a Nazi element. Turns out all Ukrainians are Nazis. What do they mean when they say all Ukrainians are Nazis? They mean that anyone who resists the Russian quote-unquote liberation is by definition a Nazi, because a Nazi is someone who resists us. We are the good guys. Whoever resists us is the bad guys. Therefore, we need to go in and now they're using very strong language. We need to cleanse Ukraine from this deep, deeply rooted Nazi presence. And there was an article. And they are talk- uh, yeah, also talking in the phrase of the problem, the Ukraine problem. Or they, the Nazi they, problem. They, they, yeah, they were using that wording from the beginning. It obviously really resonates with the Jewish problem that Hitler was talking about in the Second World War. I don't know if that was on purpose. Like it was highlighted by the Western media, but it's, if you said that we need to figure out or fix the oil dependence problem, no one would think that like, that this is a problem to be talking about this thing as a problem where you have the genocide. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't, I think the highlight that particular phrase was given is not, that's not what it's about. Cleanse the grain from the Nazi presence which means everyone who resists the Russian quote-unquote liberation, that is a lot stronger than just saying we need to fix the Ukrainian. Because you can fix the, you can talk about the Ukrainian problem and, for, and for example, refer to, I don't know, corruption and fixing that. But so anyway, so the Russian official news outlets shifted from talking about the Nazi elements to the Nazi deep rooting in, in Ukraine. And there was a document published in the official Kremlin kind of news website called RIA. And it was horrifying because they were talking about cleansing. They were talking about cleaning. They were talking about re-education. They were talking about the fact that they would need, the Russians would need to institute a total totalitarian regime in Ukraine in order to do this for I believe they were talking about for a generation or two generations. So they were very clear about the level of genocide they plan to do there. Some people have compared that document to Mein Kampf, the 
the book by that Hitler wrote while he was uh, in prison. I haven't read Mein Kampf, but it sounds like here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And if you don't stop us, that is exactly what's going to happen, which is something interesting about dictators. They often lie about what they've done, but they're very honest and direct about what they're going to do. So when we listen to dictators and they're saying, oh, we're going to kill so-and-so people, or we're going to attack in such and such way, or we're going to cleanse or clean or, or whatever, we need to listen carefully because they are actually stating their intentions. They're not overstating their intentions. They are just directly saying what they're going to do. And in the United States, when Trump said, I'm going to build a wall, he was declaring an intention to actually do something. And then he went ahead and built a wall. Now, obviously, Trump is not on the level of Putin or Hitler, but he does have these tendencies of controlling things and not like letting messy democracy get in his way. And he has the same tendency to say, this is what I'm going to do. And then he goes and does it. So we should listen carefully when people uh, say these things. Now, I completely forgot the original question and went on a tangent here. I asked how the Russian narrative kept changing. Okay, so it then changed again. So this was the first shift, right? From a small Nazi contingent in Ukraine to like a full denazification of Ukraine, which has permeated the entire society. To now it shifted to this is actually a global war against the West because Ukraine, is, it's using Western money, the Western sanctions and the what the Russians are calling the economic front of the war is coming from the West. It's not coming from Ukraine. So now they're reframing it. It's no longer a special operation. It's They're not fully calling it a war yet, but it's a conflict of Russia against the entire West. And then they tie it back to the Cold War and the long conflict of the United States and Soviet Union. So it's important to note why they're doing it. They're doing it to reinforce the belief of their own population that this war is just. They're looking for deeper and deeper implications for the war, the worse it gets for them, the more justifications they would need. Because at first they didn't think they would lose that many soldiers. Then they started to lose many soldiers. They're hiding that. But still, some of that is seeping into Russian society. They need to reinforce the sense that this is a just thing, that they need to be doing. it. So they're leaning. First, they leaned on Nazis are bad. Now they're leaning on the West is bad. And the, the, the last thing that I heard was that this is actually a holy war. So now they're bringing in the Orthodox Church, uh, church which is like a very unholy union between uh, the Kremlin and the Orthodox Church. So now they have a new narrative. I heard that maybe three or four days ago, that this is actually a, a holy war of good versus evil in the religious sense. So this is protecting the... Russians are it Christian? Russians are, are Orthodox Christians. That's their own kind of form of Christianity. I actually don't know much about it. I wouldn't be able to compare that to, to Catholicism or, or Protestants. But it's their own, It whatever. Okay, yeah. But the church supports the war. And the church okay. supports the Kremlin. It is likely because the Kremlin supports the church and funds the church and they're in cahoots together. So anyway, so the, the interesting thing is that Russia does not actually have an ideology. The Soviet Union had an ideology. Communism is good. Capitalism is bad. We're going to spread communism in the world because communism is the more just system and we will fight everybody for it. Russia does not have that. Russia has this weird kind of, you know, the, the people at the top just want to make more money and be in control. <laughs> Putinism, yes, which is not an ideology. It's no. like the ideology of a mafia. It's not like we want control and we're afraid of each other. So that's how we're going to play it. So now we're talking about the holy war. And the interesting thing is that people who would watch the the um, this narrative changing on TV would not notice that it's changing under their feet. Because every one of these things is rooted in some part of the Russian identity, in some part of the Russian's uh, war against whatever element they're choosing to focus on. And in most cases, they're not saying that it's changed. They're just stating it as the truth, pretending that it 
has always been that, which, yeah, and if you don't look, if you're Russian and you watch Russian TV and you don't look too deeply into it and it just tags to your biases and your own fear of the West, hatred of Nazis, you know, the desire for Russia to be a big power and meaningful thing in the world and the desire to spread Russian culture, then those things make sense to you if you don't look too deep into that. So what you said now, it's very easy to see it on the Russians, people, but it applies to us as well. All of us has biases. Our biases is something that we accumulate during our lives, through our life experience, through the media we consume, through, through what our parents told us when we were younger, something that we experienced when we were young and we never thought about it. We just grew up to this kind of environment and understandings and knowledge and truths. So... The best thing each one of us can do is explore our own biases so we won't fall into that brainwashing and manipulation by our own governments and other things that are happening in the world. Yeah. So can you talk now about May 9th and, what, and the importance of May 9th to the Russian people? Yeah. So May 9th is the victory day over Nazi Germany, May 9th, 1945, if I'm not mistaken. And this is another example of how narrative in the Soviet Union was changing. Because Soviet Union was based on the communism ideal, but somewhere along the line, maybe the, the 60s or the 70s, people didn't actually believe in communism anymore, for real. And the Soviet Union kind of restructured its ideology to be around, we won over the Nazis, therefore we are the good guys. So growing up in Russia and Ukraine, May 9th for my grandparents was the most significant date of the year. It's one of those dates where my parents would tell me to give my grandparents a call or write them a letter before the phones were really stable there to, to celebrate that. Huge parades, lots of tank parades on the streets. It's a really big thing in Russia. And it was reinforced by Putin because he was basing Russia's legitimacy on the fight against the Nazis. And he's been doing this for you know, the last 10 years. So it's a really significant moment. And it's even more significant this year because Russia is fighting a war it's not winning and it's actually potentially losing. Putin told his armed forces to win this war by any means necessary until May 9th. Now, wars don't work that way. <laughs> In particular... <laughs> Yeah, they don't run on schedule. <laughs> it's not like for anybody. So what this did, the Russians were retreat they retreated from the, the Kiev region after the Ukrainians repelled them. Obviously, Russians did not call it a retreat. They call it a re something, a repositioning of their troops. But anyway, they pulled out of, of Kiev. Their uh, forces were depleted, which means lots of dead soldiers and a lot of destroyed equipment. They needed time to regroup, to move back to the east Where, where in the Donbass they were planning a big assault. They needed to get food, medicine, armaments, equipment. They needed to get a lot of things there to prepare for a proper good assault. They probably needed to get a lot more men there too. The May 9th deadline actually prevented them from properly preparing. They prepared a little bit. They got some people together. They restored some of their BTGs to more or less full uh, capacity, and BDG. they started attacking. BDG is a battalion tactical group, is a way that the Russian army is organized. It's about 800 people with a bunch of tanks and support and artillery kind of working together in concert. And they started attacking. This, so they, the, the kind of the war or the battle of Donbass started, I think, three or four days ago. And it's not going really well. Like every day I'm watching on, on Twitter, there were Nine attacks, 10 attacks, 12 attacks done by the Russians and completely repelled by the Ukrainians in almost every case. They don't, they're, they're, a tank usually needs three, even four people to operate. They only have two people per tank, which means they can only fire in one direction. They either drive or fire. There's like, they don't have enough people within each tank to actually do it properly. They don't have infantry with the tanks, which means they can't protect their tanks against the Ukrainian javelins. And the order to the Russian army is to 
just use overwhelming force through just sheer amount of people to win this. Now, win this war is a big question too, because it's not clear what exactly like winning means. Taking over the entire Donbass and declaring it as a victory, maybe Putin can sell it to the Russian people. I don't know. But anyway, they're just sending all their people into the meat grinder and it's a disorganized or mostly disorganized kind of push forward. It reminds me of how the Russian army fought you know, with the Germans back in the day, where there were columns of soldiers and the first one would get a rifle and the next one after him would get the rifle after the first one dies. It's just not, they would just pour more and more people. <laughs> now, the Russians don't actually have that many people. They had about 200,000. You're, you're, should I stop talking about this? No, no. Okay. So the Russians had about 200,000 people active military. They poured all of these 200,000 people into Ukraine. They don't have any more. In order to have, like, they have a theory of about 800,000 more reserve people, but they need to be mobilized. They need to be trained. They need to declare war, uh, like an actual war in Ukraine to do that. They need to admit to the Russian population that this is a war and it's not going well and we lost so-and-so people and, and now we need, they, they need this entire possibly religious underpinning to be able to do this, which is, I think, why they're switching the narrative again, because they're preparing to mobilize the entire Russian country, economy and populace to this war and then just send people to die in thousands and tens of thousands, which... Honestly, if they do that, they can win. Because regardless like, like of how... Like they won with, with Germany. Yes, exactly. So regardless of how many people or how much equipment the Ukrainian can put against the Russians, if the Russians are going to pour 800,000 or more soldiers into there, it's just, you can't stop that. Not because Russia the, has uh, 140 million, million citizens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's possible that Ukraine would do the same. Ukraine can conceivably put a force of a million people on her side too. Yeah, it's if it goes. Which already did. It, the terrestrial defense, I think, is sixty thousand people. It's not that big. So conceptually, they can put in a lot more. If that goes in this direction, it's not going to be a few months' war. It's going to be a few years' war because when you mobilize the entire country, that means restructuring the entire industry to work only for the war. It's like a full thing. It hasn't happened in the world since the Second World War, where even the United States, like the United States, I think, sent about 200,000 uh, soldiers, or maybe it was more like maybe 200,000 in, in Europe and another 200,000 in, in the Pacific. But the entire U.S. economy was geared to work for the war. Like it just made weapons and whatever the army needed. And you can't like decide to do that, and ne then next week that's what's happening, right? It's like a, yeah. a country is a big machine; it takes a while to shift it. And it's not even clear that Russia is capable of doing that kind of thing, <laughs> because its industry is very dependent on the West. They're not getting any spare parts. We talked about it last time, and because they're not getting any spare parts, they're actually incapable of manufacturing weaponry. Their own at this point, yeah. like they would need to create things from scratch that they don't even have a way to do. It's not about scaling it. It's about, so yeah, it would take years. It's not even clear how it's possible. Yes. Okay, so since our last conversation, um, the Russian retreated from Bucha, and we have lots of information about how they treat citizens. And after that, you started to talk about that the Russians are actually worse than the German, which was very surprising for me and I'm sure for many people, how can it be that Russians are worse? And some information you still don't tell me, I know. So please speak about the differences between them and what happened in Bucha. Okay. You and I are Jewish. So for us, the idea that there could be something worse than the Germans, the Nazis in the Second World War is really difficult to even contemplate, which is why it took a long time for me to notice this. But Germans were, by all accounts, very disciplined, very structured, and very methodical. 
They would round up all the Jews, they would take the Jews to concentration camps, they would work them half to death or mostly to death, and they then they would kill them and then they would burn the bodies. And they did it in a very systematic way. There is deep brutality there, but it's not random. It's very clear. And in particular, if you were under German occupation and you were not Jewish or gay or, or gypsy or like one of the people they were trying to exterminate, you were probably okay. With Russians, the things that are coming out of, of Bucha and Irpin are just horrific, but not in a systematic way. It's a horrific level of violence and anger. It's mutilation. It's group rape. Uh, it's torture, not to extract information, but to... It's like this unbounded anger. Now, when I read about this and, and what I know intuitively about the Russian people have been repressed by their own governments forever. They have never known freedom. They don't know what it's like. There are generational layers and layers of anger and repression and trauma. Not justifying that. I'm just saying this is how it comes to be. Those soldiers that are sent to a war, they probably did not want to fight in, who already have violent tendencies, who already very likely drink to excess. And then they're sent to, to this war they didn't want to fight. And then they're fighting these Ukrainians who they believe are Nazis and the absolute evil. The worst that you can imagine comes pouring out of them. Now, yes, they're culpable. Yes, there's going to be justice. And yes, it's horrible. But it's also, given the right conditions and the right kind of hereditary progress, it's also part of humans. It's also not the first time it's happening in the world. Those kinds of rape and horror and torture and uh, mutilation. Toddlers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That happened in wars. Right, it's just it's, it doesn't make sense to us as civilized people. How could it happen in 2021? The world has been, or a large chunk of the world has been about human rights for a long time, and now suddenly this happens. Like we're in the 1400s somewhere, in... but it is happening, and it's. I think it's worse than the Germans because it's just. I don't think it's commanders giving orders to rape. I think it's commanders accepting it because it's useful in terms of applying pressure on the population. But from what it seems, it's completely random. It's just an outpouring of rage and kind of a... When I close my eyes and I see those images of Russians doing these things, there's almost like a rage combined with glee, with joy, with an expression of this explosion of anger that somehow feels good. And... That is horrific. And we've only seen little bits of it. Like, I have no doubt that every occupied uh, territory in Ukraine is going through the same thing. And <laughs> yeah, there was like some talk online that if the commanders were ordering these things or, or it was happening spontaneously. I haven't seen anything to indicate the commanders can actually order anybody to do anything. I haven't seen any indication of significant order or following orders or discipline or anything like that in the Russian army, unless under, you know, duress. So it's a very strong negative verdict about the Russian population in general, and not just Putin. And that's really hard for me to, to say, because it's easier for us in the West to say, oh, the Russian people are good and Putin is awful. It's much harder to say the Russian people are so deeply traumatized and, and and so deeply repressed and angry and even psychopathic that this is actually it's a population thing. It's like a it's like a people thing. It's not just a Putin thing. And Putin is not an accident. And the reason he came to power is not an accident. And the reason that people believe in him is not an accident. And the reason people believe that Russia needs to fight Ukraine is not an accident and it's horrifying because it means that this doesn't have a simple quick let's just remove Putin solution 
This is going to be whatever the result is. I can almost guarantee, I have 99.9% certainty that Ukraine will come out of this war a winner and be a significant power in the world. It will take them maybe a, a decade or two to rebuild, but they will have a flourishing economy. They will take part on the world stage. They will rebuild and they will be magnificent. And Russia will be devastated. And it will be devastated for generations. Psychologically, economically, industrially, like it would just, there would, there would be nothing left. Um, there's a phrase in Russian about someone who is so completely devastated that there's wet space where they were before. Mokre mesto. So it's like the only thing that's left are just... <laughs> yeah. it's And the thing that I'm worried about is that from that kind of state in Russia, see another rise of another of another horrifying... What I'm worried about is that a devastated Russia, like that is not rehabilitated properly, will be very fertile ground for another dictatorship, yes. possibly worse. Yeah. We'll need to do something about that to help them. I think one of the hardest lessons for humanity is to prevent history from repeating itself is that a devastated nation reclaiming its power and pride with great war. And we see that again and again. And We need to be able to fight the aggressor and at the same time hold compassion to them and heal its population to prevent the history to repeat itself. And we have to do all we can to do it right. Yeah, and it's hard because it's, it's holding two opposing ideas about Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Now about the 60 years of Iron Curtain... How was it like for those occupied countries to be under Russia's occupation? So, uh, you asked me offline, how come we didn't know that the Russian army was so horrific before? Because there are these stories coming out from people in Romania and Bulgaria and, and, and these places that the German occupation was pretty bad, but when the Russians liberated them, that was even worse. And that information never came out and... So all of these countries that were formerly liberated by the Soviet Union were actually under deep Soviet Union influence. Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, the, the, the Yugoslavia, uh, Czechoslovakia, all these uh, places were under deep influence by the Soviet Union. And therefore, that information couldn't come out. Now, when the Soviet Union collapsed around 1991, Some of those files and some of those records were unsealed and there was a way to, to talk about it, but it was extremely unpopular to talk about how awful the Soviet Union was because here was Russia being rebirthed into a democratic state when we, the West really wanted to accept Russia into the world community and forgive everything. So there was no focus on that thing because at that point, focusing on the atrocities of the Soviet Union would have brought Russia down. So really badly. And there was a need to prop it up so it doesn't collapse. One of the reasons no one wanted Russia to collapse is because it still had a huge arsenal of nuclear weapons. So there was always that dance, right? Russia had a lot of nuclear weapons. It's better to forgive and not talk about the things they did for the last 60, 70, 80 years and let the sleeping bears lie. But as these stories from Ukraine are coming out, people from, from these other countries, from the satellite countries, start telling these stories from their grandparents, who are mostly dead by now. Very few people who've lived through the Second World War are still alive. And they're telling about these stories, how the Russian occupation or the Russian liberation was horrific. And yes, rape was part of the, the way they did things. And yes, torture was part of the way they did things. And they looted and they stole and they, they took over everything. And they were barbaric. So it's actually not a new thing. It's not, oh, this new incarnation of the Russian army is horrific, but the old incarnation of the Russian army that fought the Germans was actually good and pure. It wasn't good and pure. They threw soldiers en masse against the Germans. They died in droves. And when they actually, the ones who survived, actually occupied these or liberated these countries, they behaved in the worst manner you could imagine. Partly, probably, because of the horrors of the war and the way their own government treated them. Not yeah. just their own kind of 
So yeah, I definitely think that it's hard for me to even say that because I was, when I was growing up in Russia, I believed in the idea that Russia was, or the Soviet Union was good and the Nazis were bad. And it's really hard for me to admit that, holy cow, Russians are definitely worse now than the Nazis were then. And it's very likely that the Russians were worse than the Nazis back then as well. And it corroborates another, I don't know if it's a well-known fact, but one of the reasons the United States stepped in to the war in 43, in the Second World War, was not to stop the Nazis because they were losing by then to the Russians. It was to stop the Russians from taking over West Europe because the Russians were pushing through and they would have taken over everything up to France and maybe even Great Britain. And the United States came in to stop Stalin, not to stop Hitler. And because they and because they came in, that's where they drew the line. Otherwise, Western Europe would have come under Soviet Union control. I don't know if they understood the atrocities that the Russians were committing. Likely not. But they were fighting against communism and kind of the totalitarian regime that was coming out of, of Stalin. Okay, wow, that's a lot. So I'm very excited, but that was intense. So just take yourself a moment to, to feel into your body, to the intensity. Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, maybe it's bring up many things in you, things that you didn't know, things that you resist to know. There's a lot here. So just take, you know, be very kind to yourself, come back to yourself, come back to your body. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. Move your hand, move your shoulders, whatever you need to to be yourself again. Okay, so you're following a new guy on Twitter that brings information from Wind of Change, somebody in the KGB, about how Russia thinks and planning their best way and strategies out of this uh, war winning. So tell us more about this stuff. So one, one little story about how things look from the West and how things look from someone, for someone who knows what Russia is like. The West is going crazy or went crazy when it was discovered that the NSA was recording all the phone conversations and collecting all the data. The West went crazy again in the last couple of years because everybody was getting um, vaccinated or there were vaccination mandates. And this was such an impingement of uh, human rights and like a violation of freedom that the West went nuts. Being a former Russian, this looks ridiculous. And the reason it's ridiculous is because this is not an impeachment of your rights. Collecting your data is not a problem. The question is, what does the government do with people? Do people get taken off the streets for saying the wrong thing and sent to a concentration camp somewhere in the north, never heard from again? Do people get disappeared or eliminated because they're inconvenient to the government? Is this happening? People in the West are saying collecting information is the first step towards that kind of thing. That's not true because no. the Russian government does not need information. They can invent information about you. They can fake information about you. If they need to get you out of their way, they do not need any information about you. They don't need anything to prove what they're doing. They can make up a story or right. take bits of information and, and, and craft a, a judgment out of it. So it's like on a scale of one to 10, the, if Russia is a 10 on in, impinging on human rights, then whatever is happening in the United States and in Canada and in the West, the worst case is 0.1. Like we're not even talking in the same scale. And that is why when, when the West is talking about human rights violations, it's just not on the same scale. Like what Russia is doing, I think is not on the same scale as what the Taliban is doing in Afghanistan. 
It's deeper. It's more systemized. They have a lot more resources. They have experience. And they actually do use tracking and information collection to find people and put them in jail for a tweet. Like, they do that. Yeah. You know, the West is up in arms because Twitter closes accounts for people who are saying things that are out there. Russia doesn't do that. doesn't close accounts. They close the people. The people, That's, yeah. <laughs> they yeah, don't exactly. turn off an app. Yeah. They turn off the person. Because when there's no person, yeah. there's no need to turn off the app. Anyway, that's, sorry, that's my little rant about how far away of the Western population is from understanding what it actually is to live under such a regime. Thank you. And that's so important, confusing and annoying at the same time, because... If we can't understand it and it's not on our scale and we never experienced that, how can we understand that? And I think what most of us are doing is we have to put this information in some box in our brain because we have to understand it. And we have to understand things for safety. We feel safe if we know. And it's kind of, it's a self-lie because it doesn't make us more safe. But there is a feeling that if I would just know everything or I, I'll put it in, in it, it, like if I make the world organized for myself, things would be safer. And yeah, just, just an opportunity to observe this and maybe accept that we can't really understand and maybe accept that we need to learn more about the culture and history of Russia or the native people or whatever, like something that is new for us, you know, about Israel and Palestine, like, like such a big topics that we want to understand in our own lands. And so how do you understand something that you never experience? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this is, I haven't experienced those things to that degree. But the perpetual state of fear that I intuitively felt as a Jew, as it happens, in Soviet Russia, it's palpable. Like, you can't, you can't get away from it. As a Jewish kid, especially once I knew I was uh, Jewish, my parents hid that from me for, for a number of years. But any stranger by definition, is dangerous. I've never felt that in Canada, for sure. People sometimes feel that across racial lines, like white people in the black neighborhood may feel that, um, and the other way around. But it's not state-sanctioned, or maybe not state-sanctioned to the same degree. People would probably argue with me about that, but... Yeah, it's just on a completely different scale. Yeah, and people might want to argue, and maybe I disagree with you, but it's an opportunity to talk about disagreements and what happened to us when we hear something that is not completely aligned with what we believe or think. Can we still respect each other? Can we stay in the conversation? Can we see that the other person is talking from a very personal, deep place from their own experience? So it's an opportunity to learn something about disagreeing with the other person and find the nuggets of truth in what they say and see how it's relevant to us. Yeah, so listen to what is relevant for you and take what you can to make your life better, to become more aware of your own experiences and your own lack of experiences and in places we have lack of experience. It's an opportunity to be curious. It's an opportunity to learn and to expand our understanding and what we can and what we're capable as human being. All right, so the other question you asked, and this would tie in nicely to what Kind of what scale these people are working at and what scale these people are thinking of. There is a guy on Twitter. His name is Igor Sushko. He's a famous race car driver who happened to 
stumble on something posted on Facebook in Russian and translated it. And that turned out to be a, a letter from someone who works in the FSB, which is, like you said earlier, is, a, is what the KGB is now called in Russia. This guy seems to be pretty high up. He's an analyst. His job is to figure out what the, I believe his job is to figure out what Russia is supposed to do about the, the, this conflict, or at least all these plans are coming um, through his desk. And he is describing what Russia potentially plans to do and how Russia potentially plans to win this conflict. There are like 15 or 16 letters from this guy. Really interesting read. But here's one thing, one idea of how to strategically win this war. We can call it the hunger blackmail. Now, I, I don't know if you guys know, but Russia and Ukraine together produce a big chunk of wheat for the world, especially uh, the third world countries, Africa in particular. And with the war in Ukraine, the wheat production or the wheat export of Ukraine has almost completely shut down. And there's going to be a rise in prices on wheat and possibly even like famine and starvation in some places because of lack of food. Now, the Russians, and this is an actual plan they formulated, are looking at that and what they're seeing is not a problem, but leverage. So the plan is to prevent Ukraine from exporting grain by bombing its facilities, by bombing its grain storages, by blockading its um, ships on one hand. And on the other hand, stopping grain exports from Russia. Now, if they do both of these things, places like Egypt that gets 80, I think, percent of their from combined Ukraine and Russia, which means like if you block Ukraine and you block Russia, Egypt does not get any grain, which means at first the prices rise and then there's mass starvation. Typically, there are riots and political instability as a result, maybe a little civil war. And then you start to have refugees from these places that are going nuts. These refugees obviously go to the West, to Europe, maybe to Canada, to uh, the United States, apply pressure on the economies of these countries. And at that point, Russia can blackmail the West. Russia can say, if we allow Ukraine to export its grain, and if we export ours, then those problems would subside, the flow of uh, refugees would stop, and you can go back to your lives, but we'll only do that if you remove our sanctions and pressure Ukraine to you know, give up territory and declare uh, whatever, some sort of peace. So this is a really Like a chess reaching... game, huh? Yes, yes. <laughs> Crazy. Well, good at chess. And it's a, such a far-reaching kind of strategy, and it gives you a glimpse. So first of all, for me, it gives a glimpse on how Russians think and how deeply they actually plan these things but it also gives a glimpse on how countries in general think like we the private citizens we don't think about things at that depth and at that level and at that level of leverage we're thinking yeah. of the next whatever next paycheck next grocery shop but this is this is a major movement of pieces on the board to create a favorable situation for Russia despite the fact that militarily they're losing but their military loss is could be insignificant if they can apply pressure through grain export. That's one plan that they had, and I'm not sure if it's they're going to do that. There are some questions whether they can. The other plan was even more sinister. It's if Russia declares, and they've already been talking about this, if Russia declares this war to be a war between Russia and the West, and the economic sanctions to be an act of war, they can actually declare war on NATO and threaten to use nuclear weapons on, say, Poland uh, and Moldova. Uh, and their plan, as was outlined, and <laughs> if Russia threatens to use nuclear weapons and the West does not respond. No, I forgot how that plan worked. It was really sinister and it was really complicated and I forgot about it. But when I read it, it's like, oh my God, they could actually pull this off. But unfortunately, I don't remember the details. So we'll just leave it with the end. Okay, no worries. Let's sum up. There's any, anything else you want to add? 
Yeah, there is. The one thing that we probably should have started with is how it's going. <laughs> like, because we talked about all the things around the war, but not the actual war. Right now, there's very heavy fighting in the east, in the Donbass um, area. Russians are, are using a lot of artillery to try to soften up the Ukrainians, and they're pushing lots of tanks and lots of um, military. They're doing multiple attacks during the day. The Ukrainians are repelling those attacks. The Russians are trying to encircle the Ukrainians. They're not doing a very good job of it. The Ukrainians are trying to encircle the Russians. That seems to be going a little better. The really important change from, say, a week ago is that Ukraine is finally getting all the weapons it's asked for, including tanks, artillery, air defense systems, some kind of smart automatic boats, and as far as I can tell, also fighter planes. That is something that for some reason is not talked directly about. It's described that they're sending spare parts for existing airplanes and platforms on which these spare parts can be. Like it's, It sounds like they're sending Lego kits of that could ev eventually be constructed to become airplanes, but they're not sending full airplanes. So that's somehow okay. Not sure what's going on there, but Zelensky yesterday in his address to, to Ukraine said he's cautiously optimistic that we're now getting everything we need. And the wow. getting everything we need is not just a decision. There, there are cargo planes flying in from the United States um, on a daily basis. There are trains coming in from Europe on a daily basis. All of this equipment is getting to the front line. So it's a real thing. It's not like on paper, we're giving you this much money and this much uh, guns, that the equipment is getting to the front lines where it's used effectively. That combined with the Ukrainian ability to do strategy and tactics really well and with their motivation and discipline seems to be turning the tide of this war. It's still very heavy fighting. There's still lots of casualties on the Ukrainian side, obviously on the Russian side. The, the casualties are even higher. but I am, at this point, very optimistic about Ukraine's chances to, to win this. Russians seem to have a plan. This I read yesterday from another one of those letters from the FSB. Russians have an interesting plan of to lure Ukrainians to attack inside the Russian borders and then tell a story of Ukrainian aggression against the Russian and use the Russians and use that to mobilize their entire country and declare war on Ukraine. There's, there's that potentially happening. It seems that the, the Russian government might be destabilizing. There are lots of friction within between Putin and his kind of group and the military commanders. It's really very messy. The bottom line, I'm really not an expert, but when I read all of that and I look at all of that, it seems that Russia is imploding. And it's not clear if they have a really good way to stop that from happening. So I think overall things are going well. <laughs> Slava Ukraini. Slava Ukraini. Thanks for listening to the Effective Conversation podcast. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet. You can follow Ellie or me on Twitter, and we would love to hear your feedback. Bye.